0: Three mothers pre-God, pre-Devil. Mother Tenebrarum, Mother Lacrimarum, and Mother Suspiriorum. Darkness, tears, (laughs) and sighs. Hi, this is another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we're here to spoil Suspiria, the new remake by Luca Guadagnino of the Italian cult horror classic from Dario Argento. And joining me from Slate's Philly Studios, aka his closet with the microphone, as I believe, is Sam Adams. Hey, Sam. Hello. Sam, you are a senior editor in the culture department at Slate. I am. And you are also a frequent spoiler companion. And uh, I want to know before we start on Suspiria, which is in a way um, a discussion about both Suspirias, I think, since this one enfolds the old one in so many ways. It's kind of a discussion about horror movies. So I just want to know before we get to either Suspiria, how you feel about horror on this Halloween week. Tell me what your visceral reactions are to seeing a scary movie. Do you crave it? Is it an experience that you seek out?
1: I, I guess I would say I both sort of crave it and dread it. I have found myself... Weirdly, as I get older, sort of more susceptible to the kind of the visceral aspects of seeing horror movies, like they just kind of, you know, get at me and and get my adrenaline flowing and make me feel – mauled in a way that they they didn't used to when I think maybe I was younger and had a less keen sense of my own mortality. But I also love watching them. And I love the sort of technical intensity of them. It's a really kind of technically demanding genre, maybe the most so and I love what uh, it gives a chance for, you know, directors and, and the whole sort of cinematic ensemble to do with it.
0: Yeah, I agree. It seems like to be a cinephile who completely rules out horror is to is to shut yourself off from a lot of pleasure and a lot of great filmmaking. Uh, but at the same time, I I agree. It gets harder and harder to watch these movies as you start to realize, gee, it really would suck to have that happen to your body, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of a of a tougher sense when you're young, like yeah, I can take all the horror you can throw at me, and uh, maybe it's sort of a morally good thing that it becomes a little bit harder as we age. But let's get to this particular horror movie that opened the weekend before Halloween, Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. Uh, I want to know a little bit about your background with the Dario Argento movie, the 1977 cult classic that this is based on. Did you go in knowing that movie or did you watch it because this one was coming out or have you not seen it yet?
1: I think I've seen it twice. The first time was a long while ago. And then I got to see it just over the summer. There was a screening here in Philadelphia with uh, Jessica Harper, the star of the original in attendance um, on 35 millimeter film, which she then came up afterwards and kind of said, actually, that's not a very good print and the colors are all off and you should really go home and watch the Blu-ray, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. was little, which, which was a little, I'm not sure how much the people who put on the screening appreciated that. But yeah, <laughs> I've, I've seen it earlier and, and recently. I am not a... um and I apologize to my friends who feel differently, but I'm not a, sor- a sort of – I don't revere Dario Argento the way some of my more sort of an intensely horror fanatic um, friends do you know, I think the original movie is kind of beautiful. I think it makes and and effective. I think it makes very little sense. And so in a way is a good candidate for a remake. It is, I mean, a lot of people consider it in the pantheon and, and were really just offended by the idea that anybody would try and do this, but surprising number of them have actually come around on this film, which has been an interesting thing to watch.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't I wouldn't say revere Argento, but I but the two movies of his that I most admire are probably Suspiria and Deep Red, right? Those are the kind of the the most the ones that are the most often shown in repertory because I think they're the most successful. And to give an idea of what an Argento movie is like to someone who's never seen one, just before we get into why Luca Guadagnino would want to take one and make it his own, the the feeling of Argento is this very specific feeling, and as you say, it's much 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 more about atmosphere and mood than about plot. Um, there's almost no story to the original Suspiria; it's essentially Girl goes to haunted ballet school and freaky things happen, right? Guadagnino takes it and loads it up with a lot more meaning and a lot more side stories, but really the original Suspiria just exists to look and feel and sound a certain way. Can you help me describe what that way is?
1: I mean, I I think maybe the best way to describe it is there is, as you say, not that much plot in the original, but there is a Close up of a knife kind of going into somebody's still beating heart, um, after their chest has been ripped open. So he's very into the the extremely sort of physical aspects of of people being stabbed to death. I mean, this is not a a movie where people get killed and just kind of fall over. Um, they, you know, bleed in enormous amounts. You get a very (laughs) concrete sense of exactly what is happening to their flesh at any given point.
0: But, but unlike, for example, I don't know, like what we would think of as a modern slasher, gore, extreme, saw kind of movie, the gore is really, really stylized and uh, and, and fake looking, right? So that the blood looks sort of like magenta colored paint. It's not even really the right color. Everything is always drenched in lurid colors in that original Suspiria. And uh, and they're not necessarily colors that are coming from any light source that you could imagine <laughs> on the screen, right? Everything just suddenly becomes bright green or, um, you know, bright violet purple. And, uh, and it really is all just about jolting the viewer from those those moods one to another
1: right both of those movies are ones that remind me of the kind of famous and like most jean-luc godard possibly apocryphal quotes but one of the things he is supposed to have said is when somebody criticized the amount of blood in one of his movies he he is supposed to have responded that's not blood it's red Mm -hmm. Um, and both disparities are very much not blood it's red movies
0: yeah, they're all about yeah, exactly, they're just all about the feeling. But I do find them scary and I do think that that property is a great one for Luca Guadagnino of all directors to to retake and try to do something new with. Not totally sure that I loved what he did with it, but but it makes complete sense that a director like Guadagnino who If you're not familiar with him, is the director most recently of Call Me By Your Name, but also of a a Tilda Swinton starring movie from a few years back called I Am Love that is also all about color and sensation and spectacle. Right. That seems very Argento-esque in its in its aesthetics. Um, He seems like the right guy to take on Suspiria. But at any rate, he has taken this property from 1977 and done something wildly different with it. And this movie, this new Suspiria, is a very divisive one. I'm curious to hear what you have to say, and I kind of hope we disagree on some stuff so we can battle it out, because it's the kind of movie that, while I found it somewhat disappointing and gave it overall, I guess I would say a negative review, I'm really glad to have seen it. I'm really glad to have written about it and to be talking about it, because it offers a lot to chew over. What was your just basic yes or no response to the new one?
1: Uh, I I I think it's a pretty emphatic. Yes. I mean, there are things are about it that I definitely think don't work and are are kind of ridiculous. um, But I very much enjoy that ridiculousness. And there are parts of it um, that I love a great deal. So overall, I think there are many more things that kind of work in its favor than against it for me.
0: All right. Okay, then maybe we'll argue out some bits. So as we start with the new one, try to remind me, because this is a very nested structure with incredibly complex timelines and multiple flashbacks and points of view kind of shifting and characters added from the original. So where do we start with this new Suspiria?
1: I believe, well, it is a, a movie in, as it announces right at the beginning, uh, six chapters and an epilogue.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, which <laughs> so which you gives you a very have, good you sense of... You have a little bit of a sense of, oh, God, here we go, when you saw that title card, six chapters and an epilogue.
1: I mean, I I do it at the same time. I'm like, oh, this could be good. Because I mean, I, I enjoy a sort of nakedly pretentious <laughs> arthouse movie under the right circumstances. And I think this very much fits into that category. So the first chapter is Chloe Grace Moretz's character, Patricia, or Patrizia, as the Germans call her, going to her psychiatrist, played by an up-and-coming actor named Lutz Ebersdorf.
0: All right, stop. Um, Since will... this is a spoiler special, we need to explain Lutz <laughs> Ebersdorf. So yes, we begin in Berlin and this young dancer who's run away from her dance school and is talking to her psychiatrist, uh, is talking to this actor who's credited as Lutz Ebersdorf. And I tried to be very uh, canny in my review about this because I really actually think this is a cool hoax and I didn't want to spoil it in my review. But this is the place to do it. So who is Lutz Ebersdorf?
1: People on the internet sleuthed this out and figured out that if you, I think you have to go back to sort of old German to do this, but Ebersdorf is sort of old German for swine town. Um, which is your big clue that this actor is actually Tilda Swinton yeah. <laughs> in Old Man Drag.
0: I didn't even... I didn't read about the language sleuthing. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, Tilda Swinton in a lot of latex with a apparently quite detailed prosthetic penis under
0: mm-hmm. her clothing. <laughs> right, which she requested from the makeup man, right? Just so she could feel herself into the role more more completely. So I have to hand it to them. I watched this all the way through having no idea that that was Tilda Swinton and discovered it all afterwards in research. And, and not only that, I wouldn't even have known for sure that it was someone in age makeup. It's, I suspected at a certain point that it might be a younger man in age makeup and and couldn't figure out why they just wouldn't cast an older man but the entire time I thought it was a, a german actor who i had never heard of so props to tilda and to to luca and to the makeup masters who who did her up for that
1: yeah and i think she wrote like a whole fake imdb bio for the character saying that this was a sort of first time actor who had studied i think jungian psychology and uh which is a clue to another one of those sort of reference points in the overall pretension of, of the movie itself.
0: Which has a lot of Jung in it, right? It definitely yes. brings in a lot of Jung. But yeah, and another thing I read that Tilda wanted to do, which I w- really wish they'd actually gotten away with this, was that she would never reveal she was Lutz Ebersdorf and there would be a title at the very end of the movie before the credits rolled saying, <laughs> in honor of Lutz Ebersdorf, born whatever year, died 2018. So then you know he would he'd be born and die as an actor with this movie. But because there's some, some smart people on the internet figured it out, that never got to happen.
1: Yeah. So anyway, so the first I, the first scene is is very agitated Chloe Grace Moretz um, coming in and explaining to this psychiatrist that she has been attending this dance academy, which is actually run by a sort of coven of, of witches who are doing this, all sorts of crazy secret things behind the walls. The psychiatrist does not believe her she runs out and is not seen again for some time. So that gives us a sense that something very creepy is afoot, but um, not what, and sort of introduces a big theme of the movie, which is the idea of kind of delusion or, or collective psychosis and, You know, whether or not you can believe what you see or hear or feel.
0: Right. Introduces that theme and also introduces a political theme that's completely absent from the original Suspiria. So this movie set in 1977, which happens to be the year the original movie came out and was also the year of the so-called German autumn when there were all of these revolutionary activities, essentially leftist political violence going on in Germany. And uh, and there was a German aircraft that was hijacked. And that's all in the movie as sort of background in the sense that, you know, somebody turns on the radio or the TV, and that's always happening in the background. And I believe there's an implication at the beginning, she may even say it, that the very agitated character played by Chloe Grace Moretz wants to run off and join the Bader-Meinhof gang, one of the groups that's per- perpetrating this violence.
1: Yeah, she leaves him with her journal and the two things it documents is there are these sort of elaborate, you know, pentagram-like drawings of how the of sort of the Coven's iconography and then the other thing are all these sort of political statements about her getting increasingly radicalized by the things that are going on in the world around her.
0: Right, and that's something that's going to carry on and become more and more important throughout the movie and that I don't think is perfectly well handled, this political thread, but I kind of do admire that he's trying to put it, he's trying to take it on and, you know, do so much more with this movie. So, okay, I don't know if this is quite where the chapter break is, but at any rate, the next next logical break takes us Back to the dance school. It's called the, the Marcos School of Dance, and it seems to be this somewhat famous company, right? It seems to be something like maybe the Pina Bausch or the Martha Graham Company of, of Germany or something. And uh, and is both a dance company and a dance academy or kind of boarding school of some kind? Because in good coven fashion, all of the dancers actually live on site at the school and just, um you know, are, are, are lorded over by these strict dance teachers who may or may not also be witches.
1: Um, and it is it – is, I mean, as you mentioned, it's sort of an, an entirely female environment, which is a lot of what's going on in this movie. You know, it's one of the reasons why – one of the sort of more interesting ideas behind why they might have cast Tilda Swinton in that role. I mean, it's it's you know basically a, a dance academy filled with young women um, staffed by middle-aged to older women – and there, there's basically no male presence in there until later in the film when the police start investigating and having the only significant male character in the movie actually played by a woman just kind of underlines that sense of the kind of world that we've entered.
0: Yeah, you're right. Every other character, every character played by an actual man is explicitly mocked and humiliated, right? I mean, there's not, there's really no space for the male in this in this world. Um, so the next young woman we see who becomes the protagonist of the movie, this is a re- prize of the character played by jessica harper in the original is Susie banion i love the kind of american blandness of that name it's so perfect for this you know the shady european world she's going into and Susie banion is played by dakota johnson um not a dancer but she studied dance for a year in order to take this role i think and uh, and she needs to kind of prove herself to tilda swinton who now as a woman is playing um what's her character's name madame blanc the the lead teacher at the academy uh yes. So Dakota does her audition, which needs to get across the point to the audience. And you sort of have to d- suspend some disbelief to believe this, that she is such a prodigious dancer that, you know, with no training or no recommendations whatsoever, she's like the Jennifer Beals in Flash Dance, right? She just dances her way into the company by sheer skill.
1: Right. And another part of the character's background, which you sort of get... A little bit at the beginning, we see sort of an envelope with a return dress that gives us a hint to this, but a lot of it comes in flashbacks, is that she's come from this, you know, very restrictive sort of traditional um, Mennonite community in the US and somehow become a, a kind of genius modern dancer and found her way to this dance academy in Germany, despite um, coming from that, which is just another, not a thing the movie does very much with, although it kind of keeps going back to that. And that's one of just the more kind of confusing aspects of it, but there's just a lot of this is a very very sort of piled high cart of the iconography this movie. He just kind of throws in everything he can think of.
0: Yeah, she's got to have a backstory. And then re- later on, Lutz Ebersdorf's character is going to have a big backstory having to do with the Holocaust. I mean, there is nothing he will not throw in to this kitchen sink like, what, you know? won't throw in and kind of in terms of thematics, politics, you know, psychology, whatever he wants to put in there, he'll put in there. And I find it kind of an unwieldy stew. But but you kind of have to respect the maximalism. Right. So main story of the movie begins and. Dakota Johnson's character, Susie, immediately starts to establish this intense connection with Tilda Swinton, who at first we see mainly as just a a very charismatic dance teacher. And uh, this is something the movie could have done a lot more with. I love a movie about pedagogy, you know, a movie about a a mentor-mentee relationship gone bad. And this movie has moments of hinting that it's going to be that, that it's going to be about this teaching dyad that's established between Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton. I don't think it really goes far enough down that road and investigates the psychology of of pedagogy as interestingly as it could but it does establish early on that these two have something in common that 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 tilda swinton sort of sees susie as someone who's able to dance this very dark choreography of this piece they're trying to put together about the holocaust uh in a way that none of the other dancers can and uh and so the corollary to that sort of being that she's ideal coven fodder (laughs) right she's somebody who's sort of able to connect to dark forces through dance right from the beginning
1: yeah and I guess one of the one of the things you could read into that is is coming from and I think this is there's some accuracy to this but coming from this very sort of you know, r- repressed sort of rule driven community, she is, you know, especially vulnerable to what at times can feel like kind of a cult like atmosphere within this uh, dance academy. So she seems, you know, very willing to kind of swap one radical ideology for another.
0: Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense, right? She's, she's a believer, and she's a, a follower of whatever kind of school that she's in. And, um, and so the first big violent uh, set piece, the first really horror thing that happens, has to do with this strong dance connection between Tilda Swinton and Dakota Johnson. So they're all hanging out in the main studio with the rest of the company. And uh, and Dakota Johnson's character says, oh, I, I know the complete part. I guess the departed dancer, right, is the idea that she needs to fill in for Chloe Grace Moretz's character who's, who's run away from the coven slash school. Um, and so yes, they're switching a, around the roles. Fill, yep. Right. They're switching around the roles of who's going to dance the lead. And even though it's literally her first day at the company, she says, I can do it. I know it by heart from having, you know, seen you guys come to the Mennonite Cultural Center or wherever she saw them. <laughs> and uh, and she proceeds to demonstrate this uh, this really dark, twisty, I think Martha graham looking sort of dance. And as she's doing it, she she becomes, through Tilda Swinton, I guess, psychically connected to this other young dancer, Olga, who has started to figure out what's going on, is terrified that she's living in a coven and is trying to flee the academy. But we watch in parallel cross-cutting as uh, she instead, Olga, that is, gets Locked into a separate studio on a whole different floor, quite distant from where Dakota Johnson is dancing and is nonetheless controlled, almost remote controlled like a puppet by by Dakota's movements uh, in such a way that. I mean, this is really well done. I have to say I had high hopes for this movie during this scene in such a way that every kind of temporarily twisted position that Dakota Johnson assumes the other dancer is permanently twisted into. Right. So you can imagine she's just getting turned into this like bone broken pretzel by the end of the scene and slammed against the walls of the studio. And it's just it's it's pretty hardcore. Did you agree with me that that scene worked incredibly well?
1: Yeah, that scene is, is pretty staggering. I think it is certainly one of the highlights of the movie. It's also one of the parts of it that is taken, I guess, with credit insofar as Luca Guadagnino has talked about it in in interviews, but without sort of authorization, I guess. But a lot of some of the images in there are kind of basically taken from or heavily re- reminiscent of some of like Ana Mendieta's images. Um, but yeah, it's this...
0: The photographer, you of, mean?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's... But it's, again, yeah, it's a sort of remote control brutalization where this dancer gets turned into this kind of human pretzel by this unseen force. And um, the the capper is that she doesn't actually die at the end. So she is, her body is kind of swollen and bruised and broken and twisted in these completely inhuman shapes, but she's still conscious and breathing at the end of it. And uh, just to make sure that we know that, several of the Coven members turn up with these very sort of, you know, elegant stylized looking meat hooks and stick them into her flesh and carry her off into a secret passageway behind the the mirrors
0: right and so that's when we start to learn and figure out that there is this yeah the the covens for real Chloe Grace Moritz was not imagining it and that it's all taking place in some kind of dark hidden corridors underneath the the academy which become later become the site of you know some exploration by the main characters All right. So once we've established via this horrifying remote control dance scene that the coven is in fact a coven and bad stuff is happening behind closed doors, what's the next set of themes that the movie dives into?
1: Well, we find out that there's a power struggle going on in there via a scene um, where you eventually gather and a lot of the things in this movie you kind of have to pick up along the way, but you gather that. The members of this coven are sort of voting as to who is going to be their lead. I mean, you find out that they are run by this mysterious quasi immortal witch named Helena Marcos. And there's a vote about who is going to, who they're going to follow, kind of who's going to lead the coven forward. And it's between um, Helena Marcos, who we end up not seeing till the very end of the movie, and um, Madame Blanc, who is Tilda Swinton's character. And there's a, a voice vote where they're voting for Mar- Marcos and Blanc and the whole, scene is kind of done in exterior with uh, subtitles and the subtitles are kind of labeled by character, but I don't think at this point, and for me, really at basically any point in the movie, I don't I don't know who ninety percent of those characters are. So it's saying, you know, Tanner or Milius or right. Vendegast. And I don't I don't have any idea who these people are. I didn't even recognize half the actresses. I mean I got to the end of the movie and saw Sylvie Testud in the credits and um, eventually kind of figured out who she was. I think she's the character who's wearing kind of like a three stooges wig and big glasses and maybe weird teeth.
0: Yeah. The one um, who, as long as we're spoiling, stabs herself in the neck at some point during the movie and we don't quite know why. I think she just can't take it anymore. <laughs> she's 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 witched out, right? She just wants out of the coven.
1: Right. But you mentioned in your review that uh, Argento kind of cast the original movie with a lot of these kind of classic sort of, you know, grand dames of um, Hollywood and European cinema. Right. Joan Bennett,
0: Alita Valley, Udo Kier is one of the evil dudes in the first movie. There's just this great kind of Euro horror, uh, you know, gallery of, of, of weirdo meanies.
1: Right. And in this one, you have people like Ingrid Coven, who was a kind of regular in like the films of um, Runner, Runner, Fassbender, who's a big influence on this. Big
0: influence. Movie. Yeah. A lot of Fassbender yes. in the look. Yeah.
1: Oh, I kind of suspect he would have hated it. But... Um, right. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Yeah. So anyway, so we find out that there is a this, you know, power struggle going on in within the Coven itself. And that and that it has to do with Paying allegiance to these kind of dark forces, which we still don't really understand. But um, eventually we kind of get the idea has to do with this uh, trinity of three mothers, uh, one of whom is uh, Mother Suspiriorum, who comes to play a big part in the end of the movie.
0: And that, of course, there's also all kinds of um, Argento Easter eggs throughout this movie, and the whole thing of the three mothers, I think, is is one of those, because Argento had what he eventually called the Mother Trilogy, which um, Suspiria was the first entry in. Although it took, th- you know, more than 20 years, 30 years or something to complete this trilogy, the last movie, and it was made in the 2000s sometime, but I believe that he identified these three movies with you know, three different kind of mythical mothers. I mean, Argento himself is really into all this mythical Jungian archetypal stuff, right? So in a way, the, his sensibility overlaps with what Guadagnino is trying to do. Although I think Guadagnino is also layering in more kind of political and social weight than uh, than Argento was in the original.
1: Yeah, I mean, either, either layering in or just kind of pouring on top, I think, depending on yeah. how successful you think it is. <laughs>
0: yeah, layering makes it sound like he's making a nice lasagna and kind of measuring it out. He's just more like throwing it all on there in a, in a big old heap. Okay, so the other backstory I think we need to get into, and I'm not quite sure where that comes in in our multiple chapters, but Lutz Ebersdorf's character, what is it? Dr. Josef Klemperer also has a backstory that becomes a bigger and bigger part of the movie as it goes along.
1: Yes, yeah, so we find out eventually, and I think this is, this is pretty late, but we start to find out that he has... A wife who was uh, taken away in, in the Holocaust. And um, he, you know, believes died, but is never, has never been sure for 30 years. And one of the things that the movie is dealing with is there's this contemporary uh, political unrest, but it is still, you know, G- Germany 32 years after the end of World War II. And there's a real sense of that underlaying things that the building in which the Dance Academy is uh, located has a, a you know, it sort, sort of looks like an old bank or something like an old just an old stone building, and there's a logo atop it that says, you know, Tons group, a dance group. But you can see that those letters have been kind of painted over or something that was there before, and either the letters were, you know, pried off or painted over, and you can't read what it was before, but there is definitely a sense that this is just, you know, just an old European city with a lot of history running through it and, and, you know, maybe ancient dark forces underneath it, but also this very dark, more recent history as well that has been...
0: Which is also signified by the wall, right? The Dance Academy is right across from the Berlin Wall. Everybody is constantly walking past a graffiti-covered Berlin Wall in this movie, and there's whole dramas about going to the other side, like when the the professor at one point goes over to hear a, a talk in East Berlin. They're supposed to be in West Berlin, though, for most of the time, correct? Like the dance academy is not in East Berlin, or am I wrong? Uh, no, I,
1: yeah, I believe, I believe that's correct. I'm tempted to say, don't quote me on it, but yes, no, yeah, that's that's correct, and that's why you get all the the sort of Bader meinhof stuff um, running through it as well, and the um, the Lufthansa hijacking, which goes through all six chapters and is a very that's a very strange element. I don't quite know what to do with because the real that real event took place over five days in 1977, which considering that it keeps showing up and would seem to suggest that the entire action of the movie takes place over a similar span of time, which is completely impossible <laughs> right. with all the things that happen. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know what is the actual intent there. I mean, is it just, is the movie just kind of fucking with our heads in that way? Is it kind of trying to suggest that these things are taking place along a, an alternate timeline? Somehow, I've heard it suggested, um, talked to, um, I don't think she's written about this yet, but Alison Wilmore from BuzzFeed has kind of suggested that maybe that eventually suggests that the whole movie, especially given how it it winds up, is maybe this whole hallucination of Lutz Ebersdorf's just takes place over this period and is really about his own guilt about his wife being taken away and not having done enough to prevent that. It's, you know, to a certain extent, I, I feel... That I don't know, the more you try to nail this stuff down, um, probably the less I would like the movie. So I'm <laughs> inclined to just leave some of it where it is. But yeah, that's a very b- bizarre element of it that I do not know how to explain, frankly.
0: That's true. Yeah, yeah. Nobody would have ever put together a dance performance so quickly if it really took place over a five day right. period. But so 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 that the the Lutz eversdorf backstory which grows and grows in importance has to do with his his as you say his wife left behind in the Holocaust who it's implied he could have gotten out that there were chances that they could have gotten out of Germany and he could have saved her life if he'd acted more quickly and so he's consumed by guilt about that and that, I believe, becomes his driver, right? That's his motivation for pursuing whatever happened to Chloe Grace Moretz, even though he doesn't believe in the supernatural and he's not buying the coven thing. And he thinks she's disturbed. He says to himself, "Oh, well, maybe, maybe there's something, you know, some some secular wrongdoing going on over there at the at the dance studio, and I should investigate it." And that's when he befriends Sarah, this character we haven't talked about, um, another of the young dancers who's particularly close to Susie Dakota Johnson's character, and who is pretty innocent of everything that's going on at the coven. She doesn't seem to be the target of any of the, the witchcraft and witchery. So when um, when Lou Eberstorff comes to her, I keep calling him that as if it's his character <laughs> name, when Dr. Josef Klemperer comes to her and uh, and tries to pry out secrets about the dance academy, she gets quite offended and storms out and says, it's just a normal dance academy. I don't know what's going on with you.
1: Yeah, and that and that character, Sarah, is played by um, Mia Goth, who has become... Kind of a standby in these really kind of over the top, pretentious, often sort of European art movies. She's in Claire Denis' High Life. She's been she's made movies with Lars von Trier. She was in a a Cure for Wellness a couple years ago. I mean, she's not, I dare say, you know, sort of an especially sort of you know supple or or like layered actress, but she's got. You a really interesting taste in in projects. Yeah, she was in the second uh, second of Lars von *Nymphomaniacs*. So, you know, whatever quality it is that makes directors kind of keep picking her up, I mean, it has resulted in a very, uh, very strange and interesting filmography thus far.
0: I think she's great in this. I think she's one of the stronger things in it, and and maybe it's just that her character, you know, her character is really uh, narratologically important. There has to be someone who doesn't know what's going on, who's kind of bait almost to draw
1: no necessary.
0: So I'm sure I'm leaving out 72 different gory set pieces we could talk about, but I feel like this is all converging on the the big operatic ending. And since this is about spoilage, that, that we should get there. What we need to know about the ending is that the big performance is being put on of this this Holocaust themed dance piece called Folk which I believe seems to have been a holdover, right? It's a dance piece that was done before, right after World War II. And this is the first time it's been performed since. And the
1: last time, yeah. So this is an old piece that they're reviving, which is why Susie already knows it, because she saw them do it. I think she even says at the Martha Graham Center um, in in New York. And then, so this, yeah, this is the last time they're doing it. She's going to dance the lead. And Dr. Klemperer decides that he's going to attend this. And while they are, are giving this performance, Sara Miyagot decides that that's the time that she's going to sneak off into the secret passageways and find out what is really going on. So there's a lot of sort of tense, uh, you know, kind of Godfather style uh, cross cutting between these two things. And the dance keeps getting sort of, you know, more violent and weirder. And she is winding her way kind of deeper into these, you know, passageways of the dance Academy. um, And eventually finds, um, Chloe Moretz's character, Patricia, who we have not seen, um, since the beginning. And, um, And she has become this sort of, I don't know, modeled, kind of desiccated, like naked but not dead husk who is just lying past. There is a a kind of partially amputated figure that comes crawling at her out of the darkness. There are all these sort of young female bodies in various states of having the life sucked out of them, hidden in the back. And I think, you know, we're meant to or we're given the idea that that life force is, is going to keep this, you know, this witch Helena Marcos Alive. So this whole Dance Academy is sort of a big uh, kind of life-sucking factory.
0: Right, right. So the idea is not to kill the girls. The idea is to keep them in this kind of undead state where they somehow provide fuel for the unseen Mother Marcos to keep on living. Now that we're talking about it, it's really creepy as hell.
1: Yes. And then Sarah starts making her way back. The witches somehow kind of open up these black holes in the floor. She steps into one of them and falls forward and snaps her leg so that the bone protrudes. A, oh yeah, compound
0: fracture big, shot, multiple big it's trigger for take.
1: me. Yeah, that's not something I enjoy seeing. And then after she is hobbled, the witches come and fix her leg, and she she goes into kind of a fugue state and then comes and joins the the Volk performance and then has had this sort of angry red welt on her calf but is still able to dance through it. And you get the sense that that's all sort of bad things are being happened, that this dance is kind of also a ritual that is going to culminate in something. But then it doesn't quite go off as, as planned. And so everyone in the room does not die the sort of horrible deaths that you're imagining they might, but, you know, that there is still a kind of ritual to be performed. And that is, you know, where the movie ends up heading.
0: And so the dance, I believe, if I remember right, the dance ends because Mia Goth's character, Sarah, she of the compound fracture suddenly collapses, right? Doesn't she suddenly, either her wound opens up or she just can't make it on in the middle of the dance. They stop the music and she's carried out. And that's the moment that Lutz Ebersdorf's character gets up from his seat and starts making their way into the the crowd to see what's going on with the dancers. And I can't quite remember how do things devolve into the insane bloodbath that becomes the last scene or two of the movie.
1: I think after that is when we get is Lutz decides that he really needs to go and kind of investigate properly. So he kind of, you know, sneaks into, you know, the dance academy, but then is sort of captured by the witches, but then also he has this sort of hallucination sequence where his dead wife appears to him and and tells him kind of oh what that's actually right that's how they her.
0: capture him yeah yeah let's talk about this scene because I actually think it's great it's it's it, it had me tricked again the same way that you know Lutz being Tilda the whole time had me tricked so um there's this moment when Jessica Harper right who played the uh, the lead Susie Banya the dancer in the original Suspiria appears to Lutz Eppersdorf. And uh, and appears to have survived the war. And she's been hiding away this whole time in a different country. And they have this beautiful reunion and walk together in the snow and kiss. And I I admit, I, I did not read that as a hallucination. I thought it was really happening. I should have been smarter because we know that the witch can witches can make people see things that aren't there. But so as they're walking along, they find themselves right in front of the dance theater. Right. And uh, and in an edit that's really nicely done, he looks up at the sign at the dance theater, then turns back to her almost as if he's going to say, hey, I've been investigating this place. I think it might be haunted. (laughs) And uh, and she's gone. And uh, and I believe it's Ingrid Coven. Right. One of the uh, the witches is standing there waiting for him. And you realize that the whole thing was just a hallucination. That was created in order to deliver him to the doors of the dance studio.
1: Right. And yes, and they come yelling at him and they and they start They're sort of come out arms outstretched. And the the funniest moment for me, uh, probably it's most like sort of strained political relevance is they say something like, you know, you don't believe women. Um, Mm -hmm. The the hashtag believe women moment in this movie was not one that I saw coming, to be honest.
0: (laughs) I wonder if it's possible that that was kind of parachuted into the movie after those stories started to break because this movie had to have been in production long before even the Weinstein story broke, right?
1: Yeah, I mean there were there was there were rumors that it was going to show it at at uh, Sundance this year. I mean, it's something that Luke was apparently editing it for a very long time, but I know that he was he was at Sundance this year. I mean, not not with the film, but he was kind of going around and like showing people the opening credits on his phone and stuff like that. So it was very much in post production at that point. Yeah, so it took a while. Apparently, he was just found it was finding it impossible to get it under three hours at that point. Um it did not end up cutting all all that much more. But
0: yeah, it's about two and a half hours now. And I mean I have to say I think it feels it. I mean, it is not a movie that that flies by. Even though I would appreciate parts of it as it went along, I was finding it more and more painful to sit through. And I personally find the ending extremely unconvincing and unscary, but convince me otherwise. So we're going to find ourselves back on this, in the same room where the dance performance occurred. It's the main studio of the of the Marcos Dance Company. And uh, all the dancers are still there in their blood red costumes. And the coven is all there, too. All the old eccentric ladies who run the place have shown up. And it seems to be time to perform whatever ritual it is that the, the whole dance was really masking and was really about in the first place.
1: Yeah. So we have Lutz um, kind of stripped naked, um, fake prosthetic penis, gloriously on display, kind of laid across these stone steps. And um, this is where they're going to perform this this ritual where uh, Susie Banyan, Dakota Johnson is going to kind of willingly sacrifice herself to Mother Marcos, who we finally get our first glimpse of and is uh, apparently, this is not even in the credits, but is apparently the secret third Tilda Swinton role in the movie. She's just kind of you know, deteriorating sack of flesh that might m- once have been a woman. Um, very hard to tell at this point, but really yes. cool and, prosthetics. Um, Did you notice
0: that one of her arms has an, had an extra little baby arm growing out of it that moves on its own? It was incredibly creepy. It was actually one of the best sort of body horror moments in the movie, and it was a complete throwaway. There was no close up of it or anything, but yeah, she had a third baby arm.
1: Yeah, she looks a little bit like kind of Baron Haukkanen in the the Dune movies, right?
0: Like or like Job of the Hut after a really really bad. Couple nights on the town.
1: Yeah, it's just not as not a pretty sight at all. Apparently, an essential part of the ritual is that the sacrificial young woman has to kind of give herself willingly, which Susie has apparently been kind of you know brainwashed or mind fucked or whatever enough to do. Madame Blanc's Tilda Swinton's character is kind of saying you know, wait, I feel like something's not right here. Something's not quite going right. Why um, does she say that? That's, that's a plot she,
0: question. Well, I mean, obviously it's a fucked up situation, but what does she feel is not going the way she wanted it to be going in that ritual?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, you just get the sense that it's a feeling at that point and because And because you know that she is opposed to Helena Marcos, I mean, that she, she might just be something that she's kind of, she seems to be sincere, but I, certainly her fellow uh, coven members feel like it's something she's just kind of making up to, you know, stop this from happening.
0: But does she realize the truth, which is that there's about to be essentially like a, 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 an occult mob hit on her and all of her supporters? I mean, it's essentially going to be the Marcos wing versus the Blanc wing. And she somehow senses that right before it's going to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think she senses that something something bad is, is about to happen, but unfortunately does not know what. Um, so, yeah, so this is where you get the big twist in the movie and the the major uh, departure from um, Argento's original. I mean, the movie doesn't follow it very closely to begin with, but the basic outlines of the plot are the same. Until we get to this point when it is revealed somehow that Susie Banyan actually is is Mother Suspiriorum, this kind of ancient, you know, one of the three mothers that this coven has been worshipping. And instead of giving her life force to Helena Marcos, um, she kills her. And then we get finally the shots of all the the witches who voted for Marcos in that earlier scene when we didn't see them. We get all the individual shots of them saying Marcos. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they all, one by one, are kind of exploded into these Big uh, blasts of blood and and flesh. Somehow, somewhere in there, Mother Marcos musters enough power to give a kind of you know sort of disembodied karate chop to the back of Tilda Swinton's neck. Uh, so Madame Blanc has her head not quite severed from her body, which then starts you know gushing yet even more blood. So as, you know, the the sort of young women that the coven has brutalized in all these various ways, including Sara Amiagat's character, who at this point has had her belly slit open and her entrails kind of slid out onto the floor and she's kind of grabbing them in her hands, but is not quite dead. All all these bodies are being kind of exploded around them. Then eventually once she's, Gotten done with that, Mother Superiorum, who is uh, Susie Banyan, comes and asks each of the girls, those wounded girls, what they want, and they all choose death. Um, I have to say
0: year? that moment was kind of incredible. I, I mean, I was, I found that that scene such an overload that I couldn't feel much during it, scare or otherwise. And I thought it was staged in such a way that it just, it sort of just seemed like pure spectacle. But that moment when Dakota Johnson goes around and asks all three of those incredibly damaged girls, "What do you want?" and they all just basically whisper, "I want to die." I I actually did get a shudder. That was really terrifying. And it also brought kind of kindness into the last scene in a way that we'll see in a moment with the Lutz Ebersdorf character, too, which is the last thing you expect at that moment, right? You would expect Dakota Johnson's character to be glorying in her beautiful new evil. But there's this... There's this idea, there's this very sinister kind of idea that she's going to be a tender, caring mother, even within her evil, you know, which is precisely, of course, how Mother Marcos and Tilda Swinton before her extended their empires by kind of pretending to be these. No, maybe not even pretending, but also channeling, you know, this caretaking maternal spirit. So, I mean, that to me was was the eeriest moment near the end.
1: Yeah. And there's all these sort of flashbacks within the movie to Susie's relationship to her own mother and her sort of death agonies which may she may be remembering or may actually be taking place during the period that the, the movie is taking place. So I think that's not entirely clear. Right. But her mother has, you know, the strict Mennonite has come to regard Susie as this kind of abomination for some reason. At one point, I think she refers to her as the shit I smeared on the world. Right. Which if her daughter is, you know, turns out to be the sort of fleshly vessel for this ancient evil witch. Fair enough. Mom may have a point. <laughs> um... There, But yeah, so there's all these kind of, you know, sort of semi-digested like mother issues flowing through it that somehow come to a point here in a way that, uh, you know, I choose to sort of enjoy the the spectacle. And I I think those small moments you, you point to are very effective. There's one amazing shot of Madame Blanc after she's had her head nearly severed where it cuts back to her and she's just kind of standing there in this frozen posture, but she turned her head sideways and kind of blinks. Um. Right, and you see that she's
0: also going to be one of those people in the undead state. And that's almost a comic moment. I mean, even though my... my theater full of people was pretty freaked out at that point by all the violence and gore. They stopped to laugh when it turned out that Tilda Swinton's semi-severed head still had some life left in it. And I sort of wish that the movie had had a little bit more of that black humor from time to time because it was laden down with a lot of heavy, serious stuff. And Tilda Swinton can do both. You know, she's somebody who can both legitimately terrify you and then get a laugh as well. And then he could have milked that a bit more.
1: Yeah, I think she is. I mean, she is playing the movie on those various levels. I think some of the other actors in it are like, I, you know, I I like Dakota Johnson in it, but I don't, and I don't, maybe she's not being asked to, but she is not, she does not have that kind of sort of multivalent acting style where she can be playing more than one thing at once.
0: Yeah. You know, this was at one point, this property was attached to David Gordon Green as a director who just, of course, made the new Halloween remake with Natalie Portman in the main role, who has had enough dance experience now that she could maybe have carried off the dance stuff a little bit better. I wonder how the movie would have been different with that actress and and director combo. I mean, to me, Dakota Johnson seems as well... As she was in the Fifty Shades of Grey movies as just basically kind of pliable material for for the director to do what he wants with. I mean, I wouldn't say that I don't like her performance in this, but she's just a a sort of naive blank slate on which things can happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, given what happens to bodies in this movie, I mean, the idea of an actor being pliable material is actually pretty, pretty interesting and sinister.
0: Yeah, Um, that could have been exactly what he wanted. And and he kind of got it from her. All right. So let's get to the epilogue. So all of that insanity happens and uh, at the end of the bloodbath, essentially, the new order has been put into place. The new Mother at in charge of the dance academy in the coven, is going to be Dakota Johnson's character. And, uh, you know, it's a whole fresh start. I don't know how she's going to restaff the eccentric old lady gang, but, you know, I guess she'll, she'll reach from within the ranks and promote up. But the next time we see her, she is on her way to the house that's been established as Lutz Eberdorf's house, where he lives with a housekeeper because he's quite old. And uh, and she finds her way in and then they have this moment. And I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to make of this, because, again, it's this question of, you know, is there some kindness? Is there some method within her madness where she's actually trying to relieve the suffering of some of the characters? And, uh, and so what she does is go into Lutz Eberdorf's bedroom. And I can't remember what happens before this. They have an exchange. And at the end of the exchange, she essentially promises him that she will wipe his memory, that she doesn't want him to have to live with his guilt and shame. She even says something like, we feed off of guilt and shame, but not yours or something. And maybe you can explain what historically you think that's supposed to mean. But she then proceeds to essentially use the Obliviate spell from Harry Potter on him. So he forgets everything that happened at the Dance Academy, all the Chloe Grace Moretz trauma, and even his own wife, he forgets the trauma of, of losing her in the war.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very weird moment because the idea of kind of magically erasing German war guilt is a kind of weird and troubling one. And I'm not quite sure what it's doing in this movie. And one of the things that causes me to have some hesitations about this is that that kind of general subject kind of lets it butt up against slightly Christian Petzl's Phoenix, which is one of my favorite movies of the last several years. Um, and it's basically, and we'll not sort of you know spoil the the ending to that for those who haven't seen it, but it basically kind of comes down on the side of, you know, the Germans knew. Even the Germans who, you know, chose, you know, acted like they sort of weren't participating in Nazism or the Third Reich, the sort of the, the good Germans, like they knew, they always knew. And it and when confronted with that, there's no way to to get around that. And for this movie to come down on, you know, basically this sort of, you know, evil character, but also with this mm. benevolent side, decides to give this this elderly German man a kind of benediction, I guess, in a way, for the death of his wife is a very strange thing. I mean, the movie does not confirm or deny his idea that he could have... Uh, that he could have saved her. She does kind of come and tell him the truth, which is that his wife actually did, you know, perish in one of the concentration camps, gives him, I guess, I guess closure would be the word now, gives him a sort of detailed account of her final moments, uh, confirms that she was not alone, that she was, you know, with people who, although they had only known each other for, you know, days or weeks, still managed to care for each other in some Fashion,
0: um, And that her and, last thoughts were of him. Her last yes. thoughts were of her husband. Right. I mean, so it, it seems, of course, this is all coming from a person who's just established as the queen of the coven and an evil witch. But nonetheless, I think that the movie wants us to feel... Some sense of clemency and relief, right? on On behalf of the doctor's character, I, I think that the, the movie does want us to feel glad that he was forgiven and obviated in the way that he was. Which I agree puts us in an uneasy relationship to whatever the movie's trying to say about the Third Reich. I mean, granted, you know, he was. We don't know if he's Jewish or not. It seems more implied that maybe his wife was Jewish, right? Because she was the one who needed to be gotten out. I think the but,
1: idea is that she was Jewish and he isn't, right? Yeah. And the very last shot of the movie is we've seen a couple of times this sort of, you know, scratched in heart with his wife and his initials on, on the uh, the outside of his house.
0: We have. Um, we've seen that earlier because the, when the last shot closed in on it, I, I didn't remember having seen it before.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much kind of getting thrown at you in, in the movie that it's, you know, I think easy to, to for a stray shot like that to just kind of pass you by. But I do, I do think we've seen it at least once. Before, But yeah, so we get this, the movie kind of cuts, um, I guess, I think it's almost all shot on 35 millimeter film, but it cuts to a kind of, you know, glaringly um, digital look for like the last shot of the movie. And it is this zoom in on this by now, um, very kind of washed out um, corner of the wall, but you can still see um, where this this heart was scratched in. Mm-hmm. So the idea there is that kind of that symbol, at least of their love, endures um so if you have the idea that you know whatever sinister past the the dance academy might have had before the war it might have been a you know building uh, i think this is not even Implicitly suggested, but you could certainly kind of imagine that it might have been a building, um, you know, commandeered by the Third Reich at some point and then had that logo painted over and a new one kind of put on top of it that also there, you know, the love of this this couple kind of endures as well um, decades into the future after we have to assume uh, Lutz is dead at that point.
0: Oh, because it takes place in the present day, that last shot? Is, it, I, is there I, modern dress on the characters around?
1: I think it's implied. I don't know about the, the dress because they're just kind of, but I mean, it, the first thing is this, this shot of these kind of very modern looking power lines. And I, and I think it's, you know, shot on, on digital in a way that feels very different from the whole rest of the movie. So it's not sort of explicitly stated, but I think that's the idea. And there, I mean, there are people going in and out of the house that was his that are clearly not him. So it right. seems, you know, as if he's, you know, long since um, given up living there um but, right but so it,
0: so that really what we end on is an image of you know the the last remaining trace of the one pure relationship in this movie that's all about compromised relationships that turn out to be not for the good yeah
1: so it's i mean it is i mean i don't know exactly what to make of the ending insofar as it kind of reframes the whole movie as being about lutz ebersdorf and his sort of you know psychology and guilt in a way that like I didn't think that was the movie I was watching for two hours and 15 minutes until (laughs) the movies kind of suddenly tells us that's what it's been. Um, So that's frankly, I mean, I would sort of like to be able to, I haven't had a chance to watch the film for a second time, but I want to kind of rewatch it with that in mind and see if it plays better that way. But it is a a kind of radical and jarring um, and, and maybe unsuccessful attempt to kind of reframe everything in the last epilogue.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I can't say that it's all the epilogue's fault, but I didn't walk out of this movie with that feeling of kind of cathartic satisfaction and a buckle having been closed, you know, that you feel after... A sort of proper horror movie, and maybe this movie doesn't want to be a proper horror movie, and it's happy with all of that sprawl. But to me, it struck me as—and I very rarely use this word—but it was a little pretentious. I think in the uh, in the division into chapters and the attempt to take on so many huge ideas, I'm not completely sure in the end that it was that much more than just a very long standard occult horror movie with some some pretty good chilling sequences, but. In other words, I'm not sure that the thematic overreach completely worked for me.
1: Right. I mean, I sort of I think I, I enjoy the thematic overreach kind of almost as an end in itself. Um, I mean, it's not a movie I would sort of defend in like every particular and, and, you know, that every sort of everything is sort of solidly nailed down and every T is crossed. But I, I like the kind of aesthetic and conceptual overload of it. It's just something that kind of, you know, blows out your circuits and, and washes over you. And I, I mean, I saw a number of people saying, and you sort of said this in your review, that this is, you know, this is a kind of, you know, nakedly pretentious, like over the top, the horror movie, you know, and the, but there are also things that I didn't like about it. So you know, I think, I, think <laughs> I would describe this movie in terms that I think a lot of the in the same terms that I think people who liked it a lot less than I did would use. I mean, right. I really it's just, sort of
0: you say pretentious like it's a bad thing or whatever. Right. And generally, I'm with you. And If a movie is called pretentious, I 100% think I'm going to love that movie and I can't wait to see it. I think it was more the chapter division or something. So it was just there was something about that title six chapters in an epilogue and then each chapter having these titles like Suspiriorum and you know Palace of Tears or whatever that it was a little bit like when your friend says will you sit down so I can read you my epic poem (laughs) and then a huge scroll is brought out you know (laughs) just the sense that like there's going to be a lot of exposition and um, you know whatever yeah
1: there is a little kind of whiff of the senior project about it I will I will own up to that yeah
0: and maybe it's also just that I went in with very high expectations because, I mean, Gooden, you know, is a great talent. This is a really interesting project for him to take on. It's his first movie after Call Me By Your Name, which I think was, it did leave you, to me at least, with that feeling of cathartic satisfaction, like the movie did exactly what it Tried to do, and you know, it put me through the ringer, and like I'm good, you know. This movie, on the other hand, is great to talk about afterwards precisely because it leaves so many dangling threads and and so many questions unanswered.
1: Right. I mean, I guess there's a similarity to Call Me By Your Name, which for me was a really sort of great movie insofar as it was kind of a, you know, a sensual, uh, like sort of sexual awakening story. And then there was also this kind of thread in there about like Jewish identity or something that uh, kind of the movie felt like it should have but didn't really know what to do with, and then kind of dropped at the end. And I, I think Suspiria is very much like that. I mean, the, the bits that are about kind of the body and dance and color and movement and editing are great. Um, I don't think that whatever attempts it's making at a grand statement about, you know, history or political turmoil land, I just sort of, I guess I reserve the right not to care about that that much.
0: Right. Well, it would be as if Call Me By Your Name had long scenes of Elio and Oliver bonding over their Stars of David and doing strange naked rituals around them. And right. I mean, if they were given this huge occult meaning that threaded throughout the whole movie, as opposed to just being the subject of conversation a couple of times. I think
1: a lot of people would like to see him follow through on the uh, the ideas you just mentioned, but um, maybe in the sequel.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe some uh, some fan service for uh, Call Me By Your Name, too. All right. Well, that that took almost as long as the movie itself, but it was, to me, more satisfying. So thanks for coming in to talk about Guadagnino's Suspiria with me, Sam.
1: No, thank you for having me, Dana.
0: Let's spoil another one soon. Yes, let's. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil in the future or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. For Sam Adams, this is Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you soon.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?